And one of the things that we tell the states when they are developing their state action plan for climate change and health is that they need to start with their vulnerability assessment. So start with your vulnerability assessment as in what is your climate vulnerability in terms of what are you most vulnerable to? Is it floods? Is it heat waves? Then also look at your disease vulnerability. Hi, I'm Purnima Prabhakaran, Deputy Director of the Center for Environmental Health at the Public Health Foundation of India. And you are listening to Understanding the Future Podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Punit Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities at the National Institute of Urban Affairs and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future podcast. I have been working and studying in the field of sustainability and climate change for more than 8 years and I have realized that I have a lot of questions on how we can build cities in India that are more climate focused. With Understanding the Future podcast, I interact with experts, entrepreneurs and government officials to understand what it takes to bring all the different solutions to the ground, as well as how can systemic changes be developed on ground. We will further anchor all the topics being discussed with different skill sets required. This will help us understand the future of cities and future of work in Indian context. If you are tuning in for the first time, do check out our previous episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the Climate Practitioners India Network, a members-led solutions-oriented platform for climate practitioners across India. And join it through the show notes. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future. I am your host, Puneet Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities. And today we have with us Dr. Poojima Prabhakar. She is the additional professor and deputy director at Center for Environmental Health at the Public Health Foundation of India. And today she will help us understand the topic of public health and climate change. Welcome to the show, Dr. Punan. Thank you, Punan. Pleasure to be here today, joining you in this conversation. Uh, thank you so much. I think this is one topic around climate change that I have not even brushed upon and uh, that is why I was really keen on getting you as well over here because I think everyone still understands now about public health especially with the pandemic but if you can still elaborate more on what all other things are also there what what does public health actually mean what are the different components of it and how do we look at it uh, before we I think uh, go towards the climate change topic as well. Uh, thank you, Punit. First of all, uh, thank you uh, for inviting me to join you on this podcast. Better late than never, I think bringing the health lens to these conversations is really important. Uh, so to answer your question uh, around what it entails, the whole public health domain. So let's put it very simply. It's a discipline that, you know, helps to protect and promote the health of people and the communities in which they live eat, work, learn, and play. So to put it in common parlance, physicians are concerned with sick individuals, whereas public health practitioners are concerned with sick populations, as in they do not want sick populations. So they are concerned with facilitating healthy environments, healthy living behaviors, and that should help to prevent people from even getting sick. 
So, so in a nutshell, that's what public health is out to do. You, you're going to protect as well as prevent and promote health of populations. Uh, yeah, that's uh, quite well put, I feel. And uh, I think uh, when we look at it from the bigger perspective, like when uh, we are talking about healthy environments, cities, especially in the smart cities as well, we have had a lot of things that come up as healthy cities and everything as well. So when we look at it, from more general population. What are the different elements that a public uh, infrastructure can be brought up on? I think, I think it's not just about uh, infrastructure in terms of physical, but what kind of capacity can be brought around in any area to see that okay, there is a good public health in the society. So let me step back a little and you know, elaborate a little about public health itself. You know, broadly, when I said, I mean, we should be working around building um, and facilitating healthy environments and healthy uh, lifestyles and behaviors, I, I think we are looking at assessing all those determinants of population health, uh, assessing the determinants of population health, not just at individual level, but household level, community level, and regional level, if it were, as it were. You mentioned cities. So it could be cities, it could be at a state level. So we are, uh, you know, as public health practitioners, looking at determinants at every level. And basically what we are out to do is looking at everything that feeds into a healthy life for an individual. So availability and access to clean water, sanitation, hygiene, clean air, both ambient air, indoor air, we are looking at probably, um, you know, enabling environments for optimal physical activity. We are looking at, um, you know, um, environments for uh, healthy behaviors, basically facilitating. So public health practitioners, they say no smoking, no tobacco, but what are those enabling environments that we need to put in place over there? So it broadly covers all of that, you know, assessing the determinants, delineating the gaps in those determinants a baseline assessment to look at all those determinants, various domains that that, uh, that determine public health in, in population health. Um, and then, you know, doing the research that is required to back programs and policies that will be required to address these uh, situations and not just stop in, you know, the research, but that research should be translated into useful programs and policies. We also, as public health practitioners, are, are helping to build capacities for implementation of programs. There's always this gap between policies and programs and its implementation on the ground. So as public health uh, professionals, we are also building capacities. We do a lot of training and skill building for people to you know, be placed there on the ground to help implementation of the public health programs and policies. And, and last but not the least, a, mon a good monitoring and evaluation program. So... All of this falls within the remit of public health. Um, and if we look at, looking at it from the disease lens, I think in India, we are, um, you know, we, what we call now the double whammy, but I'll talk about the triple whammy. So the double whammy, as in we are still suffering from, you know, communicable diseases, infectious diseases, diseases related to malnutrition. And when I say malnutrition, it's both ends of the spectrum, unfortunately, still in India. Undernutrition, um, you know, the starvation, there's many uh, parts of our country that are still having poor indicators with relation to nutrition. But there's also the other end of spectrum of malnutrition, you know, overweight and obesity, even childhood obesity is a thing now. Beyond that, you know, the whole lifestyle disorder. So heart disease, stroke, respiratory um, illnesses because of the deteriorating air quality in our country, uh, in many parts of our country at least. Uh, we also have um, cancers as a, you know as a consequence of you know exposure to even environmental risk factors, mental health. 
But I think cross-cutting across all of these domains, whether it's, um, you know, the different diseases that I mentioned now, is the other crisis that is creeping, creeping up on us. Um, and that's where we talk now about the triple whammy that we have in India. We have communicable diseases, we have non-communicable diseases, but slowly creeping in on our backyard, or I suppose already in our backyards is the climate crisis. I think that's something which is cross-cutting, and India is one of the most vulnerable um, to the climate, uh, ch- changing climatic conditions. Okay, that's that's pretty interesting. And uh, if you can also help us understand that, okay, in triple whammy, you have communicable, non-communicable, and how does climate bring uh, other set of risks? Because uh, and the climate-related diseases might also be inside communicable and non-communicable in certain format. Yes, certainly. So uh, for all of us, I think climate change has become a very uh, increasingly familiar term because of the impacts that it has, multitude of impacts, both uh, direct as well as uh, indirect consequence on not just lives, but health as well as livelihoods. So uh, we know that all these acute climate events, you know, whether it's heat waves, droughts, floods, uh, storms, and uh, what have you, all the acute climate events have very... uh, deleterious effect, effects on public health, you know, both direct as well as indirect. And if I were to start, um, I mean, mapping those out, so air, air quality, deteriorating air quality has impacts on respiratory illness. That's what we intuitively think. But increasing evidence has shown that there's impacts on every other organ system from poor air quality, you know, cardiovascular disease, strokes, pregnant women exposed to poor air quality have adverse birth outcomes. So poor air quality has a range of health impacts. But in addition to that, you know, heat-sensitive illnesses. So exposure to heat, extreme heat, uh, you know, we have increasing not just the numbers of heat waves in our country, but also the frequency and the duration of the heat waves is changing. And the heat-sensitive illnesses are another a whole portfolio of diseases that we are encountering now, from simple exhaustion to, uh, to you know, uh, strokes as well, you know, heat-related strokes, dehydration, so renal, uh, you know, failure because of extreme dehydration. So there's all the heat-sensitive illnesses. Changing climatic conditions also have become favorable for vector-borne diseases. So there comes, you know, our communicable diseases, mosquito-borne diseases, for instance, you know, dengue, malaria, chikungunya. They are spreading in parts of our country that haven't seen much of these these kinds of illnesses before. So vector-borne diseases, we also have water-related illnesses. So, you know, post a flood, for example, there's also the storm water, there's increasing uh, illness that is waterborne illness, you know, cholera, the gastroenteritis, so waterborne illnesses and post-traumatic stress disorders. So a real connection now being seen between climate events and mental health. So that's something we don't want to forget. So across the board, there's the entire spectrum of, um, you know, climate sensitive illnesses, as we call it, you know. In relation to every climate event, we see impacts. There's a surge of diseases that's happening across the board. Uh, that's that's quite a lot of uh, new things. I feel that is coming up as well, or whichever it was there before. But I think the amount of number of cases might be increasing or something. So, do we have something on the lines which helps us map and specifically point it out that this is the reason that these things are increasing or? Because I, I'm also assuming that, uh, so air quality, I know as much as that uh, it takes years for you to maybe deteriorate it to such a point that, okay, you might uh, suffer condition which you do not want. But for others as well, can we account for it in the terms of health hazard and can we mention in our, uh, maybe our reports or something, which that this is related to climate? 
So uh, for air pollution, definitely, there is an increasing body of evidence even in India now. Uh, we ourselves have done a lot of research around, you know, exposure to particulate matter PM 2.5 being uh, related to a host of uh, health indicators. And one example that I can tell you straight away is an association with high blood pressure. So uh, using a model that we have developed in-house, um, it's called an ensemble model. So we take into account exposure data from a whole host of sources, the ground monitoring stations that are put up, for example, by pollution control boards. We use satellite data, we use land use data, meteorological information. So uh, we all of this goes into our model and uh, we have uh, estimated exposure to PM 2.5 going back to 2010 using this model. So 2010 to 2020, we have a very fine spatiotemporal resolution, one square kilometer by one square kilometer for the entire country now, exposure wow. to PM 2.5. So we are now uh, doing this um, linking to various health outcomes. Um, and this, this is a consortium of researchers, uh, international collaborators that we work with, the Harvard School of Public Health, the Karolinska Institute. We call it the Chair Consortium, Consortium for Health-Related Air Pollution Research. Uh, because for the longest time, that has been the angst, that we don't have evidence from India. So what came out of that research is for every 25 micrograms increase in PM 2.5, the blood pressure of an individual in Delhi or Chennai, we started with those two cities, can increase by 3 to 5 millimeters of mercury. And what that means is if we can reach our national ambient air quality standards in India, we would reduce the prevalence of high blood pressure in the city of Delhi by 10 to 15 percent. It's as simple as that. So we can convert that into numbers that speak to the policymakers. So think yeah. about how many, by addressing that upstream determinant of your air quality, if you address your air quality, you're going to prevent that many people from accessing health care. And we already have a very overburdened health system. We've seen that during COVID. So yeah. that is just one example. Uh, so far as actually climate, uh, you know, direct climate change impacts as, for example, exposure to heat waves, the, the evidence is just beginning to grow, contextualized research in India. There is evidence from other parts of the world. You know, people have yeah. gone ahead in that, but we are working here in India as well. Exposure of pregnant women, for example, to um, extreme heat can result in adverse birth outcomes, you know, still births, mm -hmm. low birth weight. And that has ramifications across life for mm -hmm. a child born with low birth weight. So the research is growing. It's it's certainly growing. And there's a lot of appetite for doing, doing this kind of research as well as funding this kind of research, climate change related research. And I think it's a, it's a good environment just now to grow that evidence base for India. Yeah, that's, that's good to know that these things are increasing because I feel somewhere going down the line we might need more uh, and with the increasing evidence-based approach that are being used everywhere, this might just help us facilitate some of the policies in the future which will take into account the statistics that come out of these research. It's quite important. Uh, but So, when we have to look at it now, uh, let's say a city like Delhi, uh, what kind of health hazards should we prepare for? What kind of things as a city needs to prepare for when they're talking about climate change and public health? I, um, so, I mean, you asked the question about Delhi, but I would definitely yeah. like to say that, you know, oh, it's not a one size fits all. I can answer a little bit about Delhi, but, you know, for a country yeah. like India, we are countries within a country as it goes. Yeah. So, Every part of the country has a different climate vulnerability, you know. So there are states that are very prone to heat waves. There's another that's very prone to floods. 
So what we are doing definitely is when we are working with all the states through the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare's National Program for Climate Change and Health. And one of the things that we tell the states when they are developing their state action plan for climate change and health is that they need to start with their vulnerability assessment. So start with your vulnerability assessment as in what is your climate vulnerability in terms of what are you most vulnerable to? Is it floods? Is it heat waves? Then also look at your disease vulnerability. So do both at the outset, a baseline vulnerability assessment, and then start to build your adaptation response. So if I were to talk about Delhi, I think that it's all over the news. It's air quality. I think uh, one of the worst, um, you know, environmental risk factors now, um, I mean, and unfortunately, Delhi is plagued by poor air quality year after year. So I think that's a first for them, for the state, uh, for the city of Delhi. But if I were to pick another state, it's uh, Orissa, you will have to look at the flood vulnerabilities and I, uh, as well as heat waves. They are prone to both. So both at the state level, but also city level, You're, you work with uh, you know urban local bodies at city level, city action plans are being crafted. But all of those definitely need to start with a baseline vulnerability assessment. I think that's a first step. And based on that, then you develop an adaptation response that takes into account every sector. I mean, definitely the health sector is front and center. As we say, you know, in the climatic events, I think uh, first responders are the health professionals. So they have to be prepared. They have to be sensitized. They have to be aware of the surge uh, that's likely to happen. So and be prepared. So air pollution season comes along. Delhi health facilities have to be prepared for the walk-ins, the increase in walk-ins from respiratory illness or cardiovascular illness for that matter. So similarly, I think other every other region of the country needs to first map their vulnerabilities, and I think that that will help them to mount a strategic uh, plan for adaptation and response to climate events. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this is something uh, I think everyone is even trying to push forward as well, and uh, especially with the NDMA coming up with the district level guidelines. I think a lot of cities now are also able to refer to that at least to even understand that. What are the different risks that they are looking at uh, from the policy perspective? Uh, uh, but I also think somewhere all cities or majority of the cities, uh, I see go through three seasons in India and all the three seasons bring in some kind of, you know, vulnerability. So uh, somewhere it's like that it's a consistent challenge of uh, either from going from bad air quality to, you know, bad uh it's summer somewhere and somewhere it's flooding. So it's a constant loop. How can someone, so let's say an urban local body or someone prepared for these lines from, let's say, infrastructure point of view, strategy point of view, uh, SOP build-up point of view, to be able to deal with these things? Uh, so like I said before, I don't think it's a single sector response. It definitely requires working across sectors. And uh, uh, so uh, I would definitely say if uh, we were, for example, thinking of Ahmedabad's heat action plan, we know that's a classic example of an intersectoral response. And it's been a very successful plan year after year. They have been revising that plan. And that is a plan which brought together health practitioners, public health professionals, urban planners, um, you know, the policymakers. Uh, traffic police and the community together. So year on year, there's all of these people who are coming together to address the city's vulnerabilities to heat waves. And it has been shown actually morbidity and mortality from heat waves has decreased in the city. 
it started way back i think in 2010 when they had that one week in may there was a huge number of deaths that happened because of the extreme heat but that's when the heat action plan of um, the, uh, you know amdabad uh, was crafted and i they are revising it year on year based on a number of uh, consultations and indicators within the city and it's 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 a very intersectoral response and i think at every level that is what we require it cannot be done in silos and i think this has become very cliche that we talk about it all the time but it's true i think even if i'm talking about the health sector for example it's something that they they are the first responders but they cannot do this without having uninterrupted electricity a good supply of water so it takes all the sectors to be working together and um, i think capacity building at every level is so important uh, for all of these stakeholders yeah yeah i do i do agree and i i do agree capacity building i think eventually comes down as one of the things that is required in almost every field which is uh, like it's a thing which is constantly we are trying to uh, seek but we have not been able to seek across the country and i do understand that intersectional things are required but okay let's maybe then also try to understand it that if if we are taking up uh, amdavad has heat action plan uh, how can that be uh, and you already said that there are different kinds of vulnerability assessments that can be done across different institutions when these things are uh, how much are the capacity are we lacking to scale up it from one city to another in terms of uh, translating solutions translating uh different kind of challenges what are what are the quantum that we are looking at if you have any estimates on that i mean i don't have exact estimates but i can certainly say that once there is a successful uh, plan it becomes a template right and so there are other like orissa also has developed a good heat action plan bhubaneswar for example and both of these incidentally are indian institutes of public health phfis institutes in gandhinagar and bhubaneswar uh but it is a template that can be scaled up it can be picked up and scaled up in other cities if they have the same vulnerabilities what it requires is i think one political will it requires unlocking the finances the fiscal mechanisms and it requires capacity building you have to you know take that away to another city then you need to map all the people who need to come together to deliver a plan like that and unlock the fiscal mechanisms for that build the capacities and get it going and in a timely manner i mean you can't have a heat action plan kicking into play at the monsoons so amidabad heat action plan actually starts of february march and they have everything in place by you know just before the heat wave season so i'm um, i i think there's lessons that can be learned these are all best practices and um, it's it's like a, a, a exemplar of best practice for addressing heat waves similarly i think you know flood resilience or you know air quality action plans i mean there are few that can be emulated but i think um, it is it is still work in progress and like i guess we we are on a path to getting there but maybe not at the optimal pace i do agree i do agree but uh, so i i will come back to the, i think we have covered somewhere air quality and heat action plan but from the flood uh, perspective what are the major challenges that comes up on in the infrastructure what are uh, what are the major things that they need to be accounted for uh, from the public health point of view so i will give the example of kerala actually so you know the floods that happened in 2018 and and i'm speaking from the health system view uh 
the facilities were washed away. I mean, PHCs, CHCs, there were lots of... So that's what we say, you know, that we need not just structural resilience, but we also need functional resilience. I mean, they should be in um, a sense, the last building standing, but also functioning. And and that kind of preparedness can only come, okay, there were lessons learned. So going forwards, they have learned their lessons and have built, rebuilt their PHCs, for example. I myself visited a couple of them recently. And what they did was looked at the historical flood levels. They moved it a little away from, you know, from the low-lying areas. They they put in structures in place, um, uh, mechanisms in place. For example, the emergency care services are at the higher levels. Stocks, your medical equipment, pharmaceuticals at the higher level. So little steps like that. So then, you know, putting barriers for the stormwater drains. As well as uh, rallying the community, I think it was a whole of community response as well. There were volunteers, youth, everybody who came into action together to help that those communities. And I think that's where the learnings come from. I think that was a classic example of flood resilience. And now those are very sturdy, functioning healthcare facilities, which are equipped should another flood happen, they are better equipped to handle this kind of situation. But also they are better equipped and sensitized about the diseases that can come with a flood post a flood. You know, waterborne illnesses is very common. There's also issues about access for food, access to healthcare itself. I mean, you have people coming in boats after that. So they are prepared and more equipped now. So I think that example in Kerala is a very good example that we um, talk about all the time. Yeah, uh, I think good to know that uh, Kerala has been able to now develop this kind of system. And I think these are pretty important as well. And I I do understand you had also brought up uh, with the floods and all, there is a huge chance of exercising important to cater to and I, I do remember having experiences with uh, floods twice. Uh, the amount of chlorination done for the flooding just stop uh, kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, again, so now I think one uh, thing that is on the line of climate anxiety is something which is pretty commonly uh, picked up by a lot of uh, young generation at least or at least they are speaking it out more often. Uh, what is it about? What are people trying to do to solve it? How can that be catered to in the population, from the population perspective? Uh, what can be done around those things? I think the sooner we understand the urgency of the crisis and come together to address it, uh, the better. I, I think the youth, um, they are more aware, they are more sensitive, I think, to the changes that are happening. And uh, I think the youth voice has become front and center on all the climate conversations, I must say. Um, I was truly impressed. I was at the COP meetings in uh, November last year, and there's an entire passionate youth delegation that is there, and you know, front and center, trying to have a seat at all the conversations. Pretty impressive, and it's uh, not just in, um, and not just like you know, Greta Thunberg or you know, people from our country. There's people rallying together from around the world. It's a, it's a real thing. I mean, I think they are worried, worried for the future. It's not just air quality. There's so many things that climate migration, you know, has led to a lot of conflict. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a concept that we're increasingly recognizing now. Migration because of climatic conditions, acute climate events, and then all the ramifications of that, you know, access to basic necessities, air, yeah. water, food, healthcare. Uh, so I, I think 
that way it has very far reaching consequences and definitely the mental mental health of uh, young people around the world because the more sensitive and aware they are the more worried about what the future holds for them and i think uh, fair enough i think the world we leave behind um i think everybody should be concerned about and a very concerted response is required across the board and uh, all these conversations about um, you know um net zero by 2050 or 2070 or whatever it is i mean i think they require very clear cut roadmaps every country has to take a charge and uh, we talk about uh, you know the unfccc talks about common but differentiated responsibilities because every country is at a different starting point but i think there's no place for complacency because i think we we have a responsibility to our younger generation and uh, um, the anxiety is fair enough i think uh, there's a lot for us lot of room for concern true true i i do agree and i i do agree like i think this also kind of uh, was pretty visible when i think covid started and all of a sudden the air pollution kind of went away in a week or something and everyone it, it was all over the media it was all over the place like uh, covid is still going on it's a big thing i guess for uh, people to at last see the blue sky in the winter months it was uh, not possible to see but okay uh, backpacking is great uh, what kind of uh, infrastructure challenges have now been recognized especially after covid uh that yes it is uh, something like this the pandemic is a challenge but even with more and more uh, sort of public health has that coming into picture what kind of infrastructure sound system do we need to create across city uh, as then in some kind of a template that has been taken out that how this can be catered to or something but uh, at least to make sure that there is enough health capacity or uh, infrastructural capacity to cater to everyone um well certainly covid showed us we were far from capacity in terms of uh, you know a, a good health uh, response when covid happened and i think we were we were not there even before covid right so it only got aggravated and hence uh, you know the scenarios that we saw during covid but having said that i think there is now an awakening i think it, it is recognized now that public health is so important um, there wasn't a cadre for public health professionals really i mean in the whole uh, system there wasn't a cadre of public health professionals that was actually the vision with which public health foundation of india was actually set up to create that cadre trained public health uh, professionals uh, so i i think um, there is that awakening now that we need to strengthen our health infrastructure not just in numbers i think where the numbers are there we don't have the personnel so i think there's a gap in every uh, you know block over there in that of building the health infrastructure if we have the buildings we don't have the people to work over there and if we have the people to work there we don't have comfortable working environments i think that's also important so building infrastructure uh, so for structurally resilient but also functionally is comfortable working environments with all the resources that are required to deliver good healthcare you know a continuous supply of electricity is so important uninterrupted electricity in you know in a phc or a chc is so important especially when you have such high high rates of you know infant mortality and neonatal mortality we don't have electricity you can't have a functioning labor room you can't have a neonatal warmer and so 
you have newborn deaths. So I think um, there is that uh, sense now that it requires uh, strengthening across the board. Um, funds, I think, is always an issue. Financing, or if the financing is there, they are infusing the system with finances maybe, but people don't know how to use them because um, oftentimes it happens. Like things are budgeted for and they go unspent. I think this is a case with every ministry that we are hearing about. I mean, there are uh, climate action plans within the health ministry. There's the environment ministry, which is also having a national climate action plan, a national clean air plan. Uh, there's lots of intentions, but, you know, delivery on the ground suffers at the end of the day because we're not thinking in a decentralized fashion. Um, so I think it's... It requires a, both a bottom-up as well as a top-down approach to uh, address these issues. And the sooner we get there, the better. India being such a vulnerable country. Uh, I agree, I agree. And uh, I think uh, uh, you brought up the financing as well. I do also meet financial challenges at quite some of us. And as you're saying, that the usage becomes also a challenge. Uh, is there also a way in which maybe some sort of privatization can happen or some other kind of models that can come up uh, which have worked across different countries, maybe not in India but uh, other countries and that have supported public health infrastructure in a better way possible. I mean, there's always room for, uh, you know, public-private kind of partnership. You know, PPP model, I think, is uh, very good. And uh, transfer of climate finance from developed countries to developed countries, it's one of the UNFCCC mandates, right? So, I mean, the, the more that happens on a needs-based kind of approach, like there are a lot of developing countries, small island developing states, and even within India, if you just think of India as a country, there are some countries or states or districts that are more vulnerable. So picking up those highly vulnerable districts or states and, you know, focusing on them may be a starting point. So, you know, at least uh, you're helping those most at need uh, rather than dissipating resources in kind of some wasteful expenditure, which is not going anywhere, not helping neither the health nor the livelihoods of people. So I, I think it's very important to, you know, do a scoping of the entire situation at every level, you know, national, subnational district level and you know get your act together you know see where your vulnerabilities are uh, if you're looking at air pollution which are your pollution hotspots which are your hotspots focus on those i think we do have the national clean air program which is supposed to be focusing on some 132 non-attainment cities uh, what's really happening on the ground uh, i don't know uh, uh, you know much detail about it but i think that's what is required, you know, complete transparency, ownership, accountability. So people are really using the funds for what they're supposed to do, have the capacity to do so. Oftentimes that's the case. I mean, pollution control boards are given certain responsibilities, but maybe uh, they are not able to deliver for many reasons. The funds, the, or they are overworked, or they don't know they are, you know, what exactly they're supposed to do. So the same holds good, I think, for a climate response as well. I mean, it, it's a very broad thing, but it also can be granular in terms of actual action on the ground. True, true. I, I do agree. I think it, it needs more uh, systemic development of things at each level for it to be able to integrate it at each level and then hopefully get a better uh, evaluation and impact out of it as well. Uh, but uh, coming more on the lines of uh, then. Now a lot of things in, are developing and a lot of new wave of innovations are also coming in, especially with startups as well. Uh, do you see uh, any specific 
field or interest area where more startups are picking up in public health space or can pick up in public health space that people uh, startups have not recognized from the innovation perspective. I think the one thing that came to the fore during COVID, at least, was uh, you know telemedicine. You know, digital digitalizing healthcare and telemedicine has become more of a thing now, especially during COVID. People needing to access routine healthcare did it through you know video calls, telemedicine. Uh, so I think that's also a good thing because it cuts your commute. You know, so you don't have to do your commute. You can access you can access healthcare sitting at home. Um, that's good enough. So I think uh, there are new um, uh, innovations. We have a, a center for digital health as well in PHFI that was set up during COVID. So we are looking at the concept of assisted telemedicine. Given the fact that you know you might have telemedicine, people may not have internet services to access that healthcare. So there is this bridge, um, or, you know, bridging that gap through a concept of assisted telemedicine. So we are testing this out in a couple of. Uh, locations in at least three locations now. It's very successfully running where you have a one-stop shop uh, where people get everything. You know, they get assessed, they get connected to an expert through telemedicine, they get their prescription and they're out. So, so you know, those are those are new things. We, and um, I, I think that's one example. But there's also you know green technology, you know, energy efficient medical equipment. Um, and we should build demand in the health system for only uh, very sustainably produced equipment or pharmaceuticals, for example. So, for example, if we are talking about the health sector footprint, we are we contributing globally about 5% of the GHGs, greenhouse gas emissions, the health sector yeah. alone. And a big proportion of that is from the supply chain. So, you know, the supply chain should be one of the first places that we need to address if we want to reduce our footprint, the health sector's footprint. So, uh, maybe demand aggregation for only sustainably produced and supplied goods and services. For example, uh, a manufacturing unit that is taking environmental sustainability into account while doing their production. So, we are working on some of those things as well. So, you know, people who are taking into account sustainability, environmental, um, you know, um, waste that goes into the environment, all of that is taken into account. So, we, we should buy our goods and equipment only from those kind of manufacturers and suppliers. So, the huge part of the footprint of the health healthcare supply chain uh, can be addressed. Um, I think... We've talked about hydrogen ambulances in the COP. I think there was one on display over there that the NHS had the um, NHS is the UK health mm-hmm. system, so they had the hydrogen ambulance, which they were already using one in Birmingham apparently. So there are new uh, things coming out, and at the COP also we had curated a whole program around future lab. It was called Future Labs, which is actually case studies from around the world of good examples of um, you know um, sustainable healthcare, basically. So uh, there, there's a pocket of book of case studies from around the world, and our assisted telemedicine also figured there. Um, so I think it's it's there. I think innovation. There's always space for innovation and technology, and we should leverage it because I think it's the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that is one good thing that is currently happening as well. Is so a lot of people are recognizing all the different problems taken and solve it in space and because as you also pointed out, it's the intersection of solutions. It's not just it is not just one solution that is being 
work out. And I think this is where a lot of tech industries also trying to pitch in that. How can they make the, the standardization thing happen? Uh, now, from the, uh, I think this is one of the last questions that we asked all our uh, interviews that what, and this is something which brings us to the lines of uh, skill sets because we do believe that to develop all these things, it's important to develop skill sets in people and to develop public health in general. Let's say climate change will be a subset of it. What are the different specific skill sets that any professional needs to have or needs to develop to be able to work in this sector? So, uh, specifically climate change or you're talking? Um, generally about public health. Yeah, I mean, you can't have everything. Public health is also a very multidisciplinary kind of um, uh, domain. Uh, but within that, we we work with a lot of different domain experts. So we need epidemiologists, you know, who can study the dynamics of disease transmission and stuff. So even within that, you have infectious disease epidemiologists. You might have non-communicable disease epidemiologists. But yeah, epidemiologists are very important. Statisticians, biostatisticians, because you need to do all the modeling and the analytics for you know the where the disease transmissions and stuff. Um, the social scientists. I think it's very important to have a you know the lens of qualitative research uh, to study the behavioral patterns and stuff. So I think that's important. Nutritionists. We have uh, laboratory personnel because oftentimes you need to do these measurements and stuff. So you know uh, people working in laboratories for assessments, exposure assessments of heavy metals, for example. So there are blood biomarkers, for example. So. Um, and of course, I think um, it requires coming together. For example, my own team at the Center for Environmental Health in PHFI is very multidisciplinary. I even have an environmental engineer. So, uh, you know, it's such an interdisciplinary uh, domain of environmental health. So we have, we have the works, we have a nutritionist, we have a social scientist, we have, um, you know, an environmental engineer, we have a climate scientist. So it, I think it requires all those skill sets to do, you know, a good, piece of work, you know, whether that's research yeah. or you're thinking the technical inputs that you need to give to a program or a policy, it requires a very um, um, diverse kind of um, in, uh, insight to come together uh, to address these issues. So I think public health tries to get in all of those uh, domain experts when we work. Well, that's great to hear because I think this is this is quite important. But I think I'd also like to add one more question on top of it, which is I've generally received this question a lot, uh, especially from all my doctor friends that either working as a doctor or dentist or physiotherapist. What can we do to make sure that uh, we can contribute to this? Because they are not sure how to take it forward uh, based on their current practices. Yeah, interesting because I'm, I'm, I mean, and fair question because climate change, forget climate change, air pollution even is not in the medical curriculum. So they are really not aware. I mean, when I studied, I mean, it is not part of the curriculum at all. So one of the first things that we are doing is to educate the doctors themselves, like, you know, about the issue of air pollution. When they are seeing their patients, are they even thinking of uh, exposure to poor air quality as a reason for why the patient is sitting there in front of them? So we actually have done a study in some tier two, tier three cities. We went and interviewed physicians, pulmonologists, pediatricians, cardiologists. Are you thinking about air pollution when you're seeing the patient? And the answer is, oh, that's a Delhi problem. So even doctors 
don't relate to air pollution and issue like air pollution. I think now uh, with a lot of awareness building programs and sensitization, doctors are more aware, not just doctors, we're even talking to nurses. So we have a network um, called the Health and Environment Leadership Platform, which is a network of uh, hospitals and associations of healthcare providers. And we are sensitizing them through a lot of our programs and webinars about all these environmental issues. So they become environmental stewards in a way. So at individual level, of course, we want them to think about issues like climate change, climate pollutants um, and air pollution so that they can advise their um, patients, you know, when they should not be stepping out on a poor air quality day or, um, you know, taking steps, for example, uh, you know, in anticipation of a heat wave. So doctors themselves also need to you know, have this continuous medical education, I think, about these environmental issues because as we know it now, about a quarter of the global burden of disease is due to environmental disruptors. So I think it doesn't come in the curriculum and uh, we are hoping to make that change soon. There is a global movement actually now advocating for that to bring climate change and issues like environmental issues and their impacts on health into medical curriculum. And, and it's happening in some parts of the country uh, yet to happen here. But we're very fortunate that we've started talking to medical students, the future doctors, as you know, so they are very aware and they are very enthusiastic. So they have a global network of medical students who are working to, you know, towards um, enhancing awareness about climate change. So individual doctors at individual level, uh, they can do so many things, um, you know, uh, one to become aware themselves, but also to uh, educate their patients about preventive and promotive measures for their own health. I think. And little things at household level, I think, you know, uh, commuting, uh, don't use, uh, you know, disincentivizing private vehicles and using public transport. Uh, th those are little things. Waste management at the household level. All of those contribute their, to their own climate footprint. So I think these things you can tell them. And, you know, these are individual level actions that we can take. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Like, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I will, I will make sure that they hear this thing out so that they are now more aware about it and have the answer from an expert itself. Uh, thank you so much. It was uh, great speaking to you and understand more about this topic. I think this was something important that even I wanted to know more about and learn more about. So I have not come across this that frequently yet. Pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. It was my pleasure to interact with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and follow us on all social media channels. For more details about the Climate Center for Cities and registration on Climate Practitioners India Network, click on the link in the show notes. The episode is conceptualized and produced by Punit Gandhi. A big thank you to the whole team at C-Cube and NIUA for supporting the development of the podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.